Welcome to the Boone's Creek Baptist Church podcast. We are a church that exists to spread God's glory from our neighbors to the nations. This is Pastor Tim Wade, and we pray that you will be blessed as we consider God's living, active, and all-sufficient Word together. Amen. Well, do you believe that one day soon our Lord will return in robes of white? The blazing sun will pierce the night, as we just sang. If you believe that, the only reason that we have to believe that is because what we find at the very front of our Bibles about the Creator God who made everything that is, is also true. We would have no reason to hope for the return of our Savior, for the redemption and resurrection of our bodies, and the eternal glorious state that we are banking everything on. We would have no reason to hope For those things that we find at the end of the Bible, if the things that we read at the beginning of the Bible were not also true. And so this morning, I am thrilled to be starting a series here in the book of Genesis with you. Been announcing this, teasing this through most of the summer. Uh, We've been uh, preparing for this, and here we finally are. Uh, As we head into August, we're going to be starting... Uh, a series looking at Genesis 1 through 11, the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Now, uh, most of you, when it comes to the book of Genesis, most of you are very familiar with the very first words of Genesis, which are consequently then the first words of the entire Bible. It's probably the most familiar passage for most people, aside from, say, John 3.16 or Psalm 23. Uh, And and I think we could probably recite it. Let's just try it right now without looking in your Bibles and cheating. Genesis 1-1, recite it with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a remarkable statement. One of the few verses that remain consistently translated, no matter what Bible translation you're holding in your laps, that statement is going to be the same in every single translation. And rightfully so. It is one of the most powerful, profound, and clear statements ever made. And it begins the entirety of God's Word with a clear and definitive statement about who God is. His existence, His creative power. And this morning I confess to you that I had every good intention of jumping right into Genesis 1-1 with the very first sermon of our series this morning, but... That's not what I'm going to do today. As I started writing that sermon, uh, I would planned on doing a brief introduction to the book of Genesis to give you some context and background information that I think is good and helpful. But the more I studied, the more I began writing, the more I realized that that brief introduction was not going to be so brief. And I wanted to be able to give Genesis 1-1 its proper due as the ultimate opening to the revelation of who God is. And so uh, this morning, I'll, I'll just to let you in on my process to pull back the curtain and be transparent, I, I'd sent notes for your bulletins to Jennifer earlier this week. I said, okay, here's what I'm going to be doing in Genesis 1-1. Here's the, the outline, the structure. And I started writing the sermon and, and I realized about Thursday morning, oh boy, uh, we, I'm, I'm not going to touch those notes. And so uh, we're, we're going to have a bit of an introduction this morning to jump into the book of Genesis so that we're all approaching this book with the same understanding. Because 
we, we simply can't take this for granted. The book of Genesis is too important. There's too much information there. There's too much revelation about who God is for us to uh, be coming at this from different perspectives. And so there's some information that we need to know and understand before we jump into the text. So this morning we're going to be setting the stage. Making sure that we are all approaching Genesis with the same understanding of its background and the key issues that are going to be raised in these first 11 chapters. Context is crucial to understanding the author, the audience, and the application of any book of the Bible. And Genesis is no exception. If we want to ultimately get the application right, what it means for us today, we have to know information about the author and the audience why it was written, and things like that. Because, let me tell you, Satan figured out long ago that if he's going to get you to doubt the truthfulness of God's Word, if he's going to get you to question the foundations upon which your faith is built, he's not going to attack John 3.16. He's going to attack Genesis 1.1. He's going to erode your confidence there, Because if he's able to erode your confidence in Genesis 1-1 and Genesis chapters 1-11, through if he's able to undo that foundation upon which our faith is built, then he doesn't have to worry about John 3.16. Because he's already accomplished his goal. So then, what context, what background information do we need? Well, the first thing that we need to understand is the question and the answer to that question, who wrote The book of Genesis. Who wrote Genesis? Now, most of you here could probably answer that question. The answer to that question is who? Moses. Good job. You you pass. A plus, right? So, So why are we talking about this? Well, like you just answered, for most all of history, there's been consensus. And it doesn't matter what religious group you belong to. It's not just the Christians that believe that Moses wrote Genesis. Jews believe that Moses wrote Genesis. Muslims believe that Moses wrote Genesis. As a matter of fact, Muslims consider Moses to be a prophet, one of the most important prophets to ever walk the face of the earth. And they have no doubt about who wrote the book of Genesis. It's only very recently that some academics have begun to question whether or not Moses actually was the author of the book of Genesis. And and some academics have begun to suggest that Genesis was not written by Moses, but it was written at a much later date. In fact, some would even suggest after Israel has returned from Babylonian exile and they're coming back into Israel, and there's differing factions, differing political parties that are all trying to claim power and authority in Israel. And so the book of Genesis, they say, was compiled at that time in order to... uh, Uh, help some of those political factions gain a leg up in the race for prominence and power. It's serving a political agenda rather than a theological one. Now, I won't bore you with all the academic and linguistic lingo as to why certain scholars believe that to be the case. They've got all those arguments laid out, but I submit to you this morning there's no need to even consider those things because... I simply want to share with you what Jesus said about Moses and his authorship of the first five books of the Bible. So just a few passages I'll share with you this morning. First from Mark chapter 12, 
Verse 26. Here Jesus says, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now here Jesus is quoting from the book of Exodus, but he refers to this as the book of Moses. And all historians and scholars agree that the first century Jews that Jesus would have been talking to there understood when Jesus said the book of Moses that he's talking about the first five books of the Bible, which includes Genesis. And this wasn't just the title of that book. It wasn't just what they called it because he says how God spoke to him, indicating here that Jesus is agreeing that the book of Moses really was authored by Moses. Again, in Luke 24, after his resurrection, it says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, here's a different term. The law of Moses, not just the book of Moses, but but the law, the prophets and the Psalms or the writings, that's how the Jews divide the Old Testament scriptures. All Old Testament books fit into one of those three categories. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the writings. And where do you think Genesis fits? In the law, and Jesus says the law of Moses. He's attributing authorship to Moses. But finally, and I think this one is most definitive, after healing a man on the Sabbath in John chapter 7, Jesus says, or it says there, Jesus answered them, I did one work and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. And then there's a parenthetical insertion there. Notice this parenthetical insertion. Not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus here, what's he doing? What's he saying? You can, you can see there that it says not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. So is Jesus contradicting himself here? No, what he's doing is he's saying... Where did circumcision come from? It was instituted with Abraham, with the patriarchs. That's who he's talking about, from the fathers. Abraham was given the covenant of circumcision. His children after him, his descendants. So what he's saying is it didn't come from Moses. In other words, it didn't come at Sinai when Moses delivered the law to the people. Circumcision actually predates that. And so Jesus is saying this didn't come. It wasn't delivered like the rest of the law from Moses. So how can he say... Moses gave you circumcision. Well, that can only be the case if Moses actually wrote the book of Genesis. Because that, that's where that covenant, that ordinance that was given to the people of Israel comes from. That's where it's found. That's where it's rooted in. It's not rooted at Sinai. It's rooted in Genesis with Abraham. And so the only reason that Jesus can say in verse 22 is that Moses gave you circumcision is if Moses actually wrote Genesis. Bet you didn't think that in an introduction to Genesis we'd be using the word circumcision quite so much. But nonetheless, I think this demonstrates conclusively that Jesus thought Moses wrote Genesis. And for me, that's enough. I don't care what some nerdy academic says in a dusty office. right? Because if Jesus is wrong about this, If Moses didn't write Genesis, if Jesus is mistaken, if Jesus didn't really know who wrote Genesis, then he's not the Son of God. 
He is not perfect in knowledge and power. If we can't trust Jesus on who wrote Genesis, then why should we trust Jesus to go to the cross and die for our sins and be raised again on the third day? There's no reason for us to believe those things if we believe that Jesus could be mistaken about something like this. And so this is why this is important. This is why we can't just say, oh, well, some folks believe Moses wrote it, some folks don't. Because Jesus believed Moses wrote it. This isn't some minor point for seminary students to debate. Because if Satan can convince you that Moses didn't write Genesis, he can convince you that Jesus was wrong. And that's just not something that a Christian can believe. So we can be sure, we can be confident that Moses wrote Genesis because Jesus was confident that Moses wrote Genesis. Now that leads us to our second question. Second important contextual question. When was Genesis written? When was Genesis written? Well, if Moses was the author, then this means that Genesis was written, frankly, thousands of years after the many events that are described in Genesis. At the closest point, Moses lived hundreds of years after Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so this text, this book, is coming to us after the fact, after these events had taken place around the time of the Exodus. Why does that matter? Why does that matter? Well, it matters because by that time, there were already other numerous accounts of creation that were already circulating in writing. There are also numerous accounts of a flood story that were circulating in writing. And many scholars have pointed to this and said, well, we, we know that some of these stories predate Moses. They were around before Moses ever would have lived. So that must mean that Moses copied the ideas from these stories to create the book of Genesis. They'll use it to undermine the credibility of Genesis. That's why this matters. We need to understand all the issues around this. Most famously, the Babylonians had a creation account. It was called the Enuma Eilish. Not Billy Eilish for you young folks in here, but the Enuma Eilish, which contained an account of creation. It also contained a flood story called the Epic of Gilgamesh, that some of you may have studied in your literature classes. And so scholars have claimed that Moses copied from this Babylonian story because it was earlier, because it predated his. And so, added this question in your notes, does it matter? Does the fact that Moses wrote about these events long after they occurred, after these other stories were already circulating and writing, do those things change how we view the events of Genesis that's recorded for us. Well, we'll talk more about this Babylonian event, uh, document, the Enuma Eilish, when we get into creation and the flood. But for right now, I, I want to hopefully convince you of a principle that will be helpful when we consider these things. And that is just because these things were written down earlier does not necessarily make them more reliable. Nor do they make Moses a copycat. Now, let me give you an example. My background is in history. I've got a couple of degrees in history, and so I've read a lot of historical documents. And one of the things that we prize in studying history is primary source documents, documents that were written 
at the time that the people there lived who were studying about. But there is a limit to what primary source documents or earlier documents can teach us. For example, if I wanted to learn about Alexander Hamilton, and some of y'all are humming the ditty in your head because you've seen the musical, but if I wanted to learn about him, what's going to give me more information about him? There's a letter that was written by Thomas Jefferson on January 16th, 1801, to his daughter, in which he talks about Alexander Hamilton and Hamilton's helping him in the presidential election. Now that letter is going to be valuable. I can gain some insights from it. But if I really want a good and comprehensive picture of Alexander Hamilton, I'm probably going to read this. The, the biography by Ron Chernow, which is pretty thorough and comprehensive. Right? Thomas Jefferson's letter is 200 years older than this. It was written while Alexander Hamilton was still alive. And yet, it's not going to provide as clear a picture as this is. Something written 200 years after the fact because Ron Chernow has access to all the information. He has all the details and he's able to compile it in an orderly, pretty robust book on Alexander Hamilton. So just because something comes earlier doesn't mean that it's more valuable or even more accurate than something that might come later. The letter, likewise, may be biased. If you know anything about that relationship, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton weren't necessarily the best of friends. And so that letter is not going to paint as complete a picture, even though it comes hundreds of years before this book. Moses, then, is like a good historian. He's able to compile all the information... And he has the added benefit of having the best research assistant available. The Holy Spirit of God. Right? Because the Bible tells us that all Scripture is breathed out. All Scripture is inspired by God. So as Moses is writing this, he's not having to search through the the newspaper clippings in an Egyptian library somewhere trying to piece together the events of Genesis. No, he's able to communicate with God. The Bible tells us that Moses spoke to God as a man speaks to his friend. God, what, what was it that you said to Cain again? Oh yeah. right. He, he's not having to rely on his memory. God, how old was Methuselah again? Okay, yeah, got it. Right. Moses is being inspired by God as he's writing these things. And so we would expect that to be very accurate. Again, if we believe what the Bible says. But if we don't believe what the Bible says, that all Scripture is inspired by God, all Scripture is breathed out by God, then we have no reason to be confident in this. So the way we approach Genesis and the way that we approach this background, if we take the academic route, and listen, please don't hear me saying that we should ignore academia. I've benefited greatly from robust research and study in the book of Genesis and and in the sciences and all of these different things. We should not take those things lightly, but we can't allow those things to be the definitive word. When people say that, well, we should come to the conclusion that Moses obviously copied the Babylonian Billy Eilish or or whatever, then, then we should take that with a grain of salt because we understand what the Bible says 
is not based on the words of man. It's not based on the recollections of men, but it's inspired by God. And so we can have confidence because of that. Moses is able to depend upon the Holy Spirit as he writes the book of Genesis to provide us with a clear and accurate picture and make sure that he's recording what God intends for him to record. To provide an accurate and truthful account. So that leaves one major question for us before we dig in next week to the actual text. And that is why? Why study Genesis at all? In particular, the first 11 chapters, which is what our study is going to focus on. That's not to say that the rest of the book isn't important, but the first 11 chapters are particularly important. And you all know how I preach. If we were going to study the whole of the book of Genesis, uh, we'd be here for a while. So we're, we're going to condense that down a little bit and, and look at the first 11 chapters. But why? With all the other stuff that's going on in the world around us today, why go back and look at this? Why bother with all of these things? Why consider creation and floods and the Tower of Babel? Well, I want to make the case for our study of Genesis in three different ways. First, these chapters are important because they lay the foundation for nearly every other biblical doctrine. Some have argued that you won't find any new biblical doctrines outside of Genesis 1 through 11. In Genesis 1 through 11, every major, every key theme and idea and doctrine that's elaborated on throughout the rest of Scripture is introduced in some way or another. The first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis reveal to us who God is, who man is, how we got here, where sin came from, why we get weak and old, where cancer came from, where death came from, how God is working to overcome death. We are introduced to the ideas of redemption and sacrifice. We learn about God's plan for marriage. We learn about human sexuality. We learn about God's righteousness and His judgment against sin. We learn where all the different animals come from and more importantly, where all the different ethnicities and nationalities of people come from. Again, there isn't one major doctrine or idea that isn't at least in some way introduced in Genesis 1-11. through And so because of that, as we study Genesis 1-11, through we're going to be looking across our Bibles quite a bit. We're going to be tracing out how the themes that's introduced in Genesis 1-11 through show up over and over and over again in the history of Israel, in the life of Jesus, in the instructions given to the church in the New Testament, and even in God's promises of heaven. Next week, when we look at Genesis 1-1, we're going to start in Genesis 1-1, but we're going to end up in the book of Revelation at one point. Because even at the end of the Bible, the themes that's articulated there comes all the way back and finds their roots in Genesis 1. It's all connected. Everything is rooted here in the opening chapters of the Bible. And so that's why we need to be careful to study this. But that's not where the relevance ends. Genesis is relevant to biblical doctrine, but it's also relevant, very relevant, very relevant for our lived experiences today. We are living 
in a society in which you are seeing nothing less than an outright rejection of Genesis 1-11. through This is playing itself out most clearly in the area of marriage and sexuality. People are rejecting the ideas, the truths that are laid down for us in God's Word in Genesis 1-11. through We see that divorce is rampant. Homosexuality is embraced and celebrated, not simply as a lifestyle choice anymore, but now something that is morally good and in fact even morally superior in our society. Drag shows and the transgender revolution are breaking any and all boundaries of a sane civilization. Every day we are seeing more and more clearly how these movements are are targeting children and how dangerous they've become. And how it's all happening at what seems like the speed of light. It was just a couple of years ago, and, and, and indeed, even last year in our state, laws were passed that were addressing the fact that our daughters were being placed at a competitive disadvantage in sports and competition. But we see that, that things are racing past even that concern to where now doctors and hospitals are promoting the maiming and irreversible damage done to our children by hormone therapy and exploitative, mutilating surgeries. All of this is taking place in our society today. And it all goes back to Genesis 1-11. through There's no way we can understand what's taking place today without understanding first what God instituted in His Word in Genesis 1-11. through It all finds its roots there. What we're seeing today is man's wholesale attempt to undermine every truth that's found in these chapters. The wanton murder of the pre-born image bearers of God through abortion. The divisive and racist rhetoric that causes us to see other people, other nationalities as something less than full image bearers of God. The sexual exploitation industries of human trafficking in pornography. All are similarly linked in their rejection of the truths of Genesis 1 through 11. And so, if your heart is grieved by these things, and you're frustrated by what you see going on around you, and you don't understand how you combat it, how you can stand against it, how you can hold fast to the truth of God's word, you desperately need Genesis 1 through 11. Because here we find the foundational truths that we can plant our flags on and say, Thus says the Lord. This is where this comes from. This is how we understand rightly our world today and everything in it. Because you have those who embrace the truth of God's word that's found here and you have those that are rejecting it. And they're rejecting it as fast and as hard as they possibly can. It's how we make sense of all that we see. Earlier this week, you may have seen on the news that Robert Bowers that name doesn't sound familiar to you, he was the man responsible for killing 11 people in the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh in 2018. This past week, he was sentenced to death. Why was he sentenced to death? Because he was filled with hatred for people who were not like him. Descendants of Abraham, who's going to be introduced to us in Genesis chapter 11. 
And so like Cain, he rose up and he killed them. And this week, a jury invoked the covenant that God made with Noah and demanded that since he had shed man's blood, that his blood should also be shed. All of these things are foundational. All of these things are found right in Genesis 1-11. through Every detail of that situation goes right back to what we're going to be looking at here in these first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. You see, we're still trying to figure out how to sort out these principles. How to live in light of the creation truths that's found in Genesis 1-11. through We've been trying ever since Adam and Eve were first exiled from Eden. And still, more often than not, we fail. You see, Genesis 1-11 through is comprehensive. But because it's comprehensive, it's also complicated. And so, as we read through this, there's going to be disagreement that we're going to encounter. There's going to be questions that are raised. Is the creation story a literal six-day event? Or is it more of a pattern, a type pointing to something else? Is there a gap of millions of years between verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 1? We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Where did Cain find his wife? Where did the water from Noah's flood come from? Where did it go? How did all the animals fit on the boat? All of these questions are just a fraction of the questions that are raised in these chapters. But I don't think we should be troubled by those. I'll address these questions and then some as we go, but... Understand, Genesis has been controversial ever, from, ever since the very beginning. Ever since Moses wrote this book, it was very clearly contrary to the prevailing understanding of how the world came to be in his day. We'll see that as we look at the creation account. We will see how it flies in the face of what the pagans around Israel believed at that time. What the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Mesopotamians, what they believed. And how Moses is writing this as a truthful account, and how it so clearly contradicts what the other people around them believed. One commentator says of Genesis 1-11, through it is setting out a picture of the world that is at odds both with the polytheistic optimism of ancient Mesopotamia and the humanistic secularism of the modern world. End quote. I know that's a mouthful, but basically what it's saying is, When Moses wrote it, it was controversial. It remains controversial today. And it's going to remain controversial until Jesus comes back. Genesis upends everything we think about ourselves and the world around us. And it provides us with a true and better foundation upon which to build our understanding of God, our understanding of ourselves, and our understanding of the world around us. There is one last thing that I think Genesis 1-11 through does. One last reason why we are considering these chapters. And that is that Genesis 1-11 through provides hope. Despite everything that's wrong with the world around us today, what Genesis 1-11 through does over and over and over again is it introduces us to a God who is able to bring redemption out of ruin. A God who is able to bring order out out of chaos. A God who's able to bring life from death. There's so many times in these first 11 chapters where it's going to seem like everything is lost. Everything is hopeless. Yet God is going to continue to subvert our expectations to show us how He's bringing hope even in the most hopeless situations. 
How He's organizing, creating, and recreating a world, people in His image, and giving them promises of redemption. In these first 11 chapters, we're given a glimpse of what a perfect, peaceful, sinless life might look like. Only to have it stripped away by man's sin. Yet God promises. He promises in these chapters that He's going to overcome that sin. He's going to overcome the curse of that sin. He's going to overcome death. And that He will redeem, He will restore, and He will return us to Eden. All the rest of the Bible is a long story about the return to Eden. And so if we're going to know where we're going, if we're going to know about the hope that we sang about earlier, about the the sun returning in robes of white, if we're going to have that hope of where we're going, we need to understand where we've been, where we come from. Because there can be no hope if we do not first understand the depths of the darkness that God has rescued us from. Now there will be much more to cover in the weeks ahead, but today, as we conclude, I just simply want to invite you, if you are desperate for hope, if all you see around you is darkness and failure and despair and ruin, we're going to see a God who's able to bring hope into the midst of those situations. Who's able to bring redemption into ruin, order out of the chaos. If you already know that you would like to know that God, if you already know today that you would like to submit your life to the Lord of heaven who came to earth to redeem mankind from the mess of sin that we got ourselves into, then I would invite you in just a moment to come down and let me know that you'd like to have a relationship with that God, that you would like to have for the first time in your life real true and lasting hope. Because that's what we're going to find in Genesis 1-11. through But there's nothing keeping you from getting it today. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the hope that it contains, for the truth that it reveals, for what it reveals to us about You, for what it reveals to us about us. We know the picture isn't always pretty. But we know, Lord, that You are working to take the mess of our lives and make, make it into something beautiful. Because that's what you do in creation. You take something that is formless and void and chaotic and you make it into something that's beautiful and good. Lord, you're doing the same thing in our lives. And so we thank you. Lord, if there's someone here whose life is formless and void and chaotic, And they're desperate for something good and true and hopeful. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would submit themselves to you and to the hope that you provide in Christ Jesus. Lord, I just pray that you would guide us. Guide us well as we consider your word. Help us to be faithful to it. To be faithful, most importantly, to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about today's sermon or would like more information about Boone's Creek Baptist Church, you can send us an email at boonscreekchurch at gmail.com or you can give us a call at 859 263 
1-800-285-5466. You can also find us online at www.boonscreekchurch.com. Thank you and have a blessed day.